Welcome to the Impromptu Board Game Meeting, a board gaming podcast about board games and maybe some other stuff. Today, today we celebrate me. I'm the host, David, along with Andrew, Andrew, Joss, and Paul. They're all here. As you heard, Andrew, I'm here. How's everyone doing today? Doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I'm good too. I'm I'm good too. <laughs> well, actually, I'm going to do a general overview. So. In this podcast, we're going to first share a game that we've either been playing recently or that we just want to talk about real bad. Then we're going to have a short game show segment. And then we're going to look into the future and pass judgment on a game that none of us have played. I like it. Yes. Can't wait for that. And then we're going to have another small game show segment, finishing with a conversation about online versus offline gaming, the pros and cons of each, and general thoughts on that topic. So, to kick us off, I wanted to talk about a game that I've recently played called Psychic Pizza Deliverers Go to the Ghost Town. It's the acronym for that. PPDGGT. Mm. It is designed by Hayato Kisaragi and published in the US, at least, by Board Gaming Tables. And it is a very unique game of imperfect information and semi-hidden movement. What's going on is one person is a moderator and they have the map of the town. It's a seven by seven square area. And in the area are pizzas that are just lying on the ground, houses, which want the pizzas, fences, which block your way, and ghosts that are just kind of around. As you move around, the moderator will tell you what's around you. And then you have to use that information to kind of deduce the layout of the land. The thing is, there's also teleporters. And when you step on a teleporter, you teleport to another teleporter. There's three of them. And you'll know that you're teleported, but you won't know where. So basically, everyone's just kind of stumbling around in the dark. And the goal is to find a pizza. And once you find a pizza, you need to go find the matching house. And then first person to do that wins. It is a competitive I don't know what you call this. It's not hidden movement. It's like stumble around in the dark game. Pizza dragging on the floor. They should have been rats, not ghosts. It is kind of weird that the pizza deliverers go into the town to find a pizza to deliver as opposed to having it blindly find a pizza. <laughs> oh, I found one. Who wants one? Uh, as they go in. The theme is, the theme is kind of funny, but it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's weird that no one can really see where they're going. They just kind of sense what's around them. That's the psychic part. And also, the ghosts get in your way, too. If you walk into a ghost, it just blocks your movement. But you do have an attack. You can spend your turn attacking in a direction, and if there's a ghost there, yeah, erase it from existence. Uh, the reward is for this, doing... Is, is this a turn-based <laughs> game, David? It is. Each turn, okay. you either move or you punch. Okay. And, and to reiterate, you don't start with any knowledge of the map at all. You just know what's around you in the eight spaces around you. Okay. And that's it. Now, the unique thing about this game, which I found very interesting, is the... Oh, by the way, when you punch a ghost, it's not a complete waste of time, because every time you kill a ghost, you get a power, a random power from a stack of cards, which will later help you save time if used correctly. Usually it's like moving a straight line until you hit a wall, or just uh, tracking, house tracking, like give you a better idea where the house you need to get to is, et cetera, et cetera. The neat thing about this game is that with the teleports, you go to different areas, and then you have to start all over. But you still had previous knowledge of where you were, and you're encouraged to look at your opponent's maps. It's all open information. If you get to an area which sounds familiar, like 
one of your opponents has been there before. Oh wait, you you can peek. Yeah, yeah, you can look at their map. You can peek at someone else's. Oh, oh I, yes, I did not catch that. That is very important <laughs> because if you if you come to a place that sounds familiar because your opponent's been there, then if you're correct, you can use their map to better guide you on your way. That's good. It takes away from the downtime. Exactly. And you can also you could also record on your sheet their map as well if you want. I, I really like this game. I found it very interesting. It's very creative. There is one problem, though, and that is another game called Odyssey Wrath of Poseidon exists, which is very similar to this in terms of basic mechanics and not theme, but in that one, one person is Poseidon and everyone else is on ships and they're all trying to make it into the middle. It's a one versus all game rather than a competitive game and such that the person that has the perfect information, the one who's telling everyone what they see around them when they move, is also messing with the ships and trying to get them to go off course by confusing them or moving them in, in a spot where it's hard to deduce where they are. So people will have general knowledge that they've been moved, they just won't know where, they have to figure out where they are, usually in a hurry, so they can get back on course and make it to the island in the middle. That one is a one versus all, where the four people on the board are on a team against the one person who is beside him, trying to prevent them from making it to the middle. <clears throat> Ghost Pirates, everyone's on their own. The first person to grab a pizza and get it to a house wins. But the problem with this I have is that one person is the moderator. And the moderator has nothing to do but moderate. Whereas I know there are some people that do like that kind of thing, and it is enjoyable to watch people stumble around and you know mess up and make bad deductions or make brilliant deductions and get through the maze in a way you didn't expect people could. But at the end of the day, you're really just sitting there and moderating. It's kind of just like watching. Whereas in Odyssey, Wrath of Poseidon, the person moderating is also trying to mess with the players and is a more active role. I just wish that the moderator had some kind of active thing to do in this game. But other than that, it's a very unique game. I'm very creative, and I really like it. That's Psychic Pizza Deliverers Go to the Ghost Town. That sounds really fun and awesome. Oh, yeah. Next time, next time I, I do, I'll have the copy, and I probably won't be getting rid of it, so I can definitely show it to you next time I see you. Awesome. No, that please. Please. Oh, glad you, glad you liked it. Seems like a theme you have going for the games you like. Yeah. I do like unique games, unique mechanics, uh, hidden movement especially, at least personally. So. so yeah, Andrew, what game have you been playing next or would like to talk about? So the game I've been playing briefly slash would like to talk about is Gloomhaven. Uh, so Gloomhaven is a big sort of campaign style game where you've got characters and you're they're running around dungeons and stuff and all that sort of more like traditional themed like tabletop role-playing game. So there's a lot of big hype around this. I've been wanting to play it. Finally got to play it, and I'm glad it was worth it. I'm glad I got to play it. It was worth it. The, the cool, unique thing for me in this game, aside from me just sort of liking this genre in general, but the sort of unique thing is how you sort of manage your cards as you do your actions. So on your turn, um, in Gloomhaven, you have a hand of cards, and all these cards represent you know, what you can do. But unlike a lot of other games where you just sort of play one of these cards and do the thing, um, in Gloomhaven, you actually play two cards a turn. And each card, uh, there is a top half and a bottom half. And 
you're essentially combining the top and bottom halves of the two cards you play to sort of make a sort of unique card or action for the turn. I thought that was very cool. <laughs> I thought that was very cool. I hadn't seen something like that. It was very clever. And uh, I am looking forward to playing more. Yeah, it uses it. Uh, there's some numbers that use as uh, initiative tracking, too. Yes, yeah, so that's, that's another fun part of the game, where um, every, every round, um, the turn order, as, as indicated by this initiative number, is going to be different, and that's also going to be based on um, which cards you play. So that's, that's another like, fun little surprise, because sometimes in these types of games, like, the turn order is like, often set at the very beginning, and then it just sort of follows in that row. Um, but this is, yeah, in Gloomhaven, that's another little difference where the initiative, the turn order, is going to change each round. And again, it's based on which cards you end up playing. And there will be times where you would want to go earlier in the turn versus later in the turn as well. One of the most unique things about this game for me is the management of life which is a bit abstract, but also part of the really cool design about it, being that your life is your cards. The number of cards in your hand is essentially your life points, but you play two of them each turn. At the end of your turn, quickly, or you can take an entire turn, to get all your cards back, you have to throw one away. And so there's like this ticking time not bomb, but like your life your Kind hand, of. Yeah, kind of. Your hand keeps shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Yeah. And but also you need to discard cards, maybe for some effects, and discard cards to block damage. If you get hit by a particularly catastrophic hit, you can just discard a card instead of taking the damage, which is a big part of the strategy because you're essentially throwing your life away. But you also need to manage your character's hit points so it doesn't go below zero with your hand, which also can't get to zero. And that part is maybe one of the hardest parts for newer players to really figure out. And thus, especially like your first game, I feel like the game is very difficult initially because you're figuring out all these systems. 100%. Yeah, in fact, the very first... How, how did your first game go, though? Did... I, I, I've, I've been playing Gloomhaven on digital version, and then I played it on the sort of normal difficulty. The, the game, by default, recommends you play on easy. Quote-unquote easy. We chose to play on normal. It was the first time any of us had played. There's three of us. And yeah, we burned through cards a little too quickly that first time. And it's a sneaky thing as well, as David was saying, where if you run out of cards, you, you can get them all back, but by sort of permanently losing one. And so what happens is as the game goes on, as you have fewer cards, you're actually need, then that means you need to recover your cards faster, which means you're losing them even faster. It really sneaks up on you. And that first round, that first uh, scenario, we all died because we ran out of cards just a little too quickly. Yeah, I remember my first time playing it. Uh, I play with a group of people. We consider ourselves pretty good board game players, and we mm -hmm. died hard on the first mission. And we're like, "Man, this game really yeah. is hard." <laughs> yeah. But yeah. then, but then the second time we played, we kind of breezed through it, and we're like, "Oh, we just had to learn <laughs> a little bit better." Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's part of the fun is learning that and then seeing how that will change and how the game will sort of mess with your calculations and force you to relearn things and figure out new little things. I'm definitely looking forward to playing more. I'm interested in seeing what you think about it as you play more. It is the number one game on Board Game Geek for a reason. 
and thus we'll see what happens. Joss, what game would you like to talk about today? Um, I've been talking about how to host a murder mystery games because um, I'm running an event at my house where someone wants to do that, and they have like this idea for a murder mystery, and I'm like, well, do you have you been it before? Do you know what it entails? I'm you know a bit of a game snob, so. I'm telling them, yeah, you could throw something together, but to actually make it fun, it's it takes a bit of work. And maybe it's not like high priority on their list, but I'm like looking into games, looking at these games. I haven't actually played one, but I've been reading about it, reading about how they run. There's this, I got two of them, this uh, How to Host a Murder Mystery series, which I think is like pretty top tier, like definitely like um, OG, like they set the stage for like how these things go. And how they run i read like a little spoiler about how they run basically everyone's it's like a set eight people this this style is a set eight people everyone has like a thing they privately read that tells them what to share and what private information to know and things like that and at the beginning of each um quote round or something act it was like four they share the information and the way it's it's set up like you could be sharing information about one thing and then someone else actually has something to say about that topic so it's um you know natural the way it kind of com- the, the conversation can get going you also like don't know who the murderer is and also you like learn things about like what you did that night based on like the conversation and the gossip that's going around but it seems like the way it's built up it's very um you know it helps you along to have this experience um, which seems pretty cool, and it seems like not so easy to just like throw together. She has some great concepts. Like she wants to have these like acid tabs. You can like that someone's passing. She wants to have a disco themed murder mystery, and she wants to have like acid tabs that pass around. But like the red ones are good acid, and the blue ones are like laced with poison, and the killer's trying to kill you. So like at some point later, they're gonna say, "Oh, by the way, if you had a blue acid tab, you're dead." Um, anyways, some cool concepts like that, and shot, shots and things. But yeah, I've been like pretty interested in this kind of game, and I think you can also tie into it like a meal, you know, dressing up of the theme. So acting, you know, it's a whole kind of many layered experience that I'm excited to try, especially since I have like the venue to do it, and I think I'm at a point where I could probably get seven other people to sit down for two hours. Oh, is the total time only two hours? Actually, I'm not sure where the total time is, but I don't think it's, it can't be much more. But I mean, if you tie in like, you know, hanging out and making food, or I mean, eating food, not probably not making food, then uh, then it could be like a whole, you know, cool experience and drinking, you know, it could be a whole fun, great experience. I'd be, yeah, a little surprised if it only run two hours. <laughs> Actually, I have had a friend run one of them. It said it took them a long time, but. You know, I think it depends on the group and how much they they talk and, you know, jibber-jabber together. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's also a lot of setup that goes into it and, like, a lot of, you know, work to sort of keep track of things. Like, I could definitely see it taking a long time, but it still sounds, like, potentially very fun. I've done one of these. Technically, it doesn't take a long time. It's just you're sitting there, if the group is sitting there and they're going through each phase, like, usually there's, like, two or three phases where different information comes out or you have an event like someone suddenly dies in the middle usually and they'll have a plaque or saying like you're going to die at this point uh back natural or something or it depends on the mystery but in general 75 percent of the fun really is dressing up and acting a character and kind of uh socializing as the character yeah so to go from point to point really depends on the group you could probably buzz through the whole thing in like less than an hour 
or even less than half an hour if you wanted to just be like, hey, here's what happened. You have five minutes go, and then, but who wants to do that? That's way too rushed. Yeah, that's not what you're going for. Yeah, you're supposed to. Well, there's usually an event like the host is like the having a party, and then you just you have the party, and then whenever your people feel like it, usually an hour or two later, then you go to the next point. So if you do it like that, then it's going to take like five hours, like the whole night, whatever. Yeah, these events are fun. They are very, and you can play how you want. I like how. A lot of the times, the the killer or the person who you know the the guilty party doesn't even know that they're guilty party. Uh, as you mentioned, the, you you find out what you did later that day. It's like it's like waking up from being blackout drunk all over again. <laughs> okay, so you have this this opinion, this perspective as as I do. Then probably that you can't just like throw this together, like like the person who put this game together. Like there's writing, written to reveal information, and how to foster conversations. Yeah, make, making your own is a far different story. I, I got it from a box. It's like how to host it. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I understand. This this person who, I'm gonna, who wants to run this event, um, they haven't actually played a game or run one. They just have has some like loose ideas. So I think people don't respect games enough. They watch it on TV. Yeah, maybe they saw that Office episode. <laughs> they did it on The Big Bang Theory, too. Oh, did they? I'm thinking of that, yeah. one, that one where he's like doing the Savannah accent, the Louisiana accent, Michael. Anyways. Um, yeah, so that's what I've been thinking about lately. I haven't played it. But I like the option to talk about something I haven't played because I haven't played too much yet. You're going to have to warn people not to look up the answer on their phone. Yeah, no one's going to be that silly. There's some people, they love to win, so they'll just <laughs> look around and then later they'll say, you didn't tell me I couldn't look it up. <laughs> like, great, dude. Yeah, this isn't going to be that crowd. This is going to be the crowd that like makes like, tasty gluten-free appetizers and then we like fawn over it for like a whole half an hour before we even like... <laughs> gluten free, but I love gluten. So that's what I've been doing. How about you, Paul? What you've been playing or have to talk about? Recently, I just got a chance to play Mile Fiore. Oh, I've been hearing about that a lot. Okay, so for listeners who've been listening to episode one and two, you now can confirm I definitely don't speak Italian. Mile Fiore. <laughs> it means a thousand flowers. Just call it. Just call it MF from now on. MFer. So it's by uh, Reiner Knizia. It was released last year in Germany by Schmidtspiel. I don't think it has a U.S. release yet. I think it will in the near future, but not quite yet at time of recording. Uh, This game is very Reiner Knizia. It's much more tactical than a lot of his games. A lot of his games are very, like strategic and you have a overall like plan whatever you're doing this is like you got to just do the best with what you got and the way it balances it it's a drafting game so you're just going to start with a hand of five cards choose one and pass and play the card and the drafting elements are just really simple and straightforward and the real meat of the game comes in the scoring and a lot of the scoring are just shared incentive scorings so you're kind of measuring, well, okay, I'm going to score this much, or how much is the other guy going to score when I do this? And um, overall, I really liked it. It's a pretty pretty interesting game, but random luck elements based on drafting. So as long as you're okay with that, uh, I think the game overall is pretty good and pretty quick, which is a big plus. Got cute little pieces, too. Yeah, it does have a lot of cute pieces. 
Question. Did you play with the drafting variant? I'm going to say yes. Okay. So I'll, I'll explain that. The drafting variant, the, the main problem I have with this game is I did play it once at the BGG Con 21. And I found this game. It looked beautiful. And said Reiner Canizia, I wanted to try it. There's a lot of exploding combos in the game. Yeah. Where if you place a piece here, you get points and you get another turn, or you get the equivalent of another turn. And often those are set up to exist by the player before you. So in our game, we didn't play with a variant, which is everybody drafts a card, but you don't reveal it. You reveal them all at the end. Well, everybody everybody drafts one card. You pass the thing around, everyone drafts a card, but they don't reveal it. And then they're all revealed at the end, you go in order. Or actually, you, you go one at a time, you don't reveal the card until it's your turn still. But yeah, this changed a lot of things, because in our game, one player which just happened to be in the position of um, benefactor of all these exploding combos. And you can just do that because the person before you, like, they'll have to draft the card. And with that card, they'll set up a combo somewhere just because everyone spent, the, it's kind of like dots and bosses. Everyone spent the game avoiding setting up this combo, explode the person next to them. And at some point, it's the dam's got to burst. And, you know, if, if you see your cards, if you see the state of the board when you draft, you know exactly when to hit the combo. And you just do that, and there's no, there's no thinking. And the person that can do that the most, just out of general sheer luck, will win, or at least do the best. The, 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 the variant makes it so that, especially, you know, if you're, if you're not the first person drafting, you're not really sure what the board state looks like when you draft the card. You can kind of infer based on like probability, or like, you know, who would take this, or why would they leave this card if they hadn't already done it, you know, that kind of thing. But it makes the game way better. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, it could go either way. Um, we didn't play that variant. We just picked a card and played it, and then picked a card and played it. And then, so you're saying, in the game, you draft four out of five. So you're saying draft all four cards, then play them uh, just in succession all at once. Well, in order. That does sound interesting. I mean, I think that sort of... Doesn't that ultimately like have the same problem? You're just taking sort of the decision-making out of it? A little bit. I mean, you do have the information on what cards get passed around or that you've passed around, stuff like that. You can just get lucky and just luck into all the um, all the combos and other things like that. But it's never a sure thing. It's way the decisions are way more interesting when you're trying to predict, as opposed to just being like, "Oh, there it is, boom." That seems very crucial, honestly. Playing it that way that you just mentioned, Scam David. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's just a very like player preference option. I could see some people liking one variant and some people liking the other variant. It's certainly a lot easier. I mean, the game is, at its core, is very simple. It's not a it's not a very complex game. And so, some people may just like, hey, I don't have to think that hard. Do um, what is best for now. I don't have to try to predict all that stuff. Yeah, the more, more complexity you add to it, obviously, some people are just not going to like that. But for me, personally, uh, I don't want to play without the variant. And those are some games we've been playing recently and our thoughts on them. So, to cleanse our palate a little bit, I thought we'd play a little game. Everyone excited? Yay! Yay. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, who here is familiar with the game Wavelength? I am. I just watched the Shut Up and Sit Down review, which I love those guys. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've played it. 
I've probably played the um the Jackbox kind of version. Like it's not actually that game, but it's um it's related to it. It's got the same kind of um one of the one of the similar mechanic to it. You're guessing what other people think about a thing, but in a certain way. So for those of you that don't know, Wavelength is a game where we're going to have a spectrum. I've adjusted it a bit because we're doing a recording. We don't have the game in front of us, and for our listeners, you can't see the game. But what's gonna happen is we're gonna have a spectrum from let's say fun game to to bad game or lousy game, unfun game, whatever. So we'll have a spectrum from, oh, I do it the other way from bad to good. So unfun game to fun game. And I'm gonna give an example. I have put a random number generator from zero to 100 for all the categories I've made up. And for the number that is presented, let's say 50 is given to me, then I need to come up with an example that I think is exactly in the middle of the spectrum from unfun to fun. So 50 would be right in the middle. I will try to think of a game that's exactly middle. If the random number, number generator gave me 100, that is the top of the spectrum, I would try to think of a game that is the most fun you know, and so on for whatever number the random number generator gives me. After I reveal the spectrum and I reveal the clue I've chosen, all of you are going to guess what number I get fit into the spectrum, according to me. According to David. Okay. Okay. Yes, according to me. The closest to it, and you can go over, the closest to the correct number uh, will get a point. And if there's a tie, you both get a point. Sounds good. I'm, I'm, I'm... Everyone clear what we're doing? Seems pretty straightforward. I think so. I'm I'm clear, but I mean, like, if you're gonna really be like true to the game, you might want to have like a range. Like, if you're within ten, you get a point. If you're like if you win spend five, you get two points. You know, mean something like that. Just, a, just a thought. Oh yeah, yeah. For future, for future versions, I was thinking about implementing that, but I wanted to see how this just basic version goes. All right, and see if we want to revisit it in the future. Yep. All right, everyone, ready for the first category? All right. All right. From a spectrum of Ameritrash to Eurogame, where have I put Champions of Midgard? Spectrum from Ameritrash. To Eurogame. Correct. Oh, I knew what the board game was, but. If you don't know the game, you are allowed to look it up on Board Game Geek. That is fine. Or do research on it. I think it could be things of like Lords of Waterdeep kind of level. But yeah, so Zero would be the most Ameritrashy game ever, and 100 would be the most Euro y game ever. Another thing about um, this is uh, the game usually has like part of the. And I haven't played the game, but from what I understand, part of the game is people coming together on an answer. Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, a little bit of this way. Oh, a little bit of this way. You know what I mean? Oh, right. That's, I mean, if you had teams, like before when we had Brad, um, there would be two teams of two and you could discuss it. And then we'd just, and then the other team would say higher or lower based on what the answer is. Um, but we don't have that here. So we're going with the second option where, you talk about why you chose what you chose um, after you reveal the answer. Yeah. So you're making a whole new game, David. No, it's just, yeah, kind of. Although there is the... Um... Like I'll be on a team and just have a score, and then you're arbitrarily like, oh, if you reach 20 points, you're very good. Right. That is the cooperative version of Wavelength, which I also enjoy. Oh, is it not always? Yeah, there's a cooperative version. Basically, um, you draw seven cards, and with those seven cards, you're trying to get over 15 points. The real goal is to get over 25 points. 
which um yeah it's, if you know the range it's you get four points for spot on three points for near the spot on and two points for near that and zero points outside of that and so you're trying to get 25 points with seven cards and you rotate who gives the clue the trick is though there is a way to get more cards if you hit it spot on in the cooperative version you don't get four points you get three points but you also get another card oh you hit another scoring potential okay yeah preferably above 15 but um the real goal is above 25 that's how you like get the highest score and that's the cooperative version of wave wavelength which is nice because you don't need two teams you can play with like less than four people all right does everyone have an answer i think so joss yeah i will <laughs> no 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 i have an answer i have, oh, a, okay. I have an answer i won't i won't base my answer on anybody else's opinions andrew what have you put for Amer champions of midgard on the spectrum of ameritrash tier again i'm gonna say that champions of midgard Let's say it's around a 55. 55? 55. Why have you chosen 55? The first thing, well, so I, I initially was thinking it would probably be lower, because the first description of it I saw was, oh, it involves a bunch of dice rolling to beat up the things, and I'm like, well, that is in the Ameritrash category, based on my, uh, <laughs> there's a funny video. Anyways, I initially think it was looking lower, but then I kept looking at the stuff, and it was like, oh, the board, it seems like there's actually stuff going on with the board, and so I nudged it more onto the euro side okay that's how that's how i got there i thought it was more ameritrash but looking at it more it's like ah, actually maybe not maybe not so just what have you decided for champion midgard um i'm going to be like 66 um i think at the heart of it it's a it's a euro game it's got i feel like i have played it once it's just maybe just once you know um it's the heart of it's a euro game but it's got these themes and these like, you know, maybe maybe some quests attached onto it, which, you know, isn't so crazy for a hero game, but it's definitely not um usual how it goes. So yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking basically a hero game with some thematic elements that make you think that it's a Maritrash game, but it's not really. All right, sixty six. Jean Paul, what have you chosen for Champs of Midgard? Uh yeah, I've played this game once a long time ago it's i think this is the the game that um blood rage is based on right that i'm not sure of yeah i might have heard of that somewhere but but it's it's by eric lang isn't it that i'm pretty sure it is not let me look it up but go on okay artist po designer oh listen okay no it's not by eric lang i guess 75 very early it's pretty midweight Euroy, uh has some worker placement elements. And sure, there's dice rolling, but, you know, lots of Euros have di dice rolling, so. 100% Euro then, right? I thought it was, um, the art, as I recall, was pretty nice. The art is nice, yes. Mostly it was an, like, worker placement area majority game. So I have to give it more Euro than not. I may have different opinions on this scale than you guys. But for me, Champions of Midgard, I have placed it at a very middle-of-the-road 52. Woo! I do love me some Ameritrash, but it has to be like the right theme. And my, like the game has to be designed around it. It can't just be like, let's just throw in a bunch of randomness. Just call it good. It won the 2015 
Board Game Quest Awards Best Strategy slash Euro Game nominee. So, I mean, how are they going to give a Ameritrash game a Euro Game nominee award? Oh, I see. Interesting. Well, I was given the number 52 by the RNG. What would you all put it for around that area? RNG? Random number generator. I didn't pick the... I didn't just I didn't just pick a game. Yeah, I didn't just pick a game and assign a number to it. I was given a number, and I had to choose a clue to try to hit that number. Oh, you were given... Oh. My thinking of Champions of Midgard is, um, at least for me, is that... I think Joss mentioned, yeah, it has the heart of a Euro. It's very much a worker placement game. It's very much resource collection and go out and uh, do the things. But the problem here is of some of the very important things that you do is killing monsters or a couple other things. And these all involve die rolling. And die rolling on its own is not just Ameritrashy or Amerithrash, if you want to be more positive about it. Um, there's plenty of games that use die rolling, like Raja the Ganges and other things, where Castles of Burgundy, where luck may be a factor, but it doesn't feel like gambling or you know really hoping for good results on the dice and or else you lose and this one it's very much that you can send a bunch of troops to fight the monster and if you roll poorly all those troops are dead and you get nothing and with all the setup you do and other things like that that's kind of a big part of it and thus you know for that reason i've kind of nudged it towards the middle where there are some there are some hope in those die rolling, you really have to pray for the heart of the dice. Heart of the dice, to, nice <laughs> to, to bless you. Yes, heart of the dice. How very Yu-Gi-Oh of you. <laughs> yes, so that was my reasoning for putting Champions of Midgard at fifty-two. It was very hard to think of something that's like right in the middle, like you know. <laughs> so one of the games that comes to my mind immediately when I think of Meritrash is Nexus Ops. There's very little randomness in that, right? Isn't that just tile placement? No, there's there's a lot of die rolling for the fighting stuff. You roll a dice, yeah. Yeah. You're building dudes. Dudes on a map type deal. If I was using that as my Ameritrash game, then I can see Midgard being in the middle. Yeah. I was for some reason I was thinking more like Risk or something. Risk would probably be over at the zero end of the Ameritrash. Exactly. So that I was kinda of thinking more like unplayable type games. <laughs> it's one way of putting it, I suppose. Generally those games just take too long and I don't feel like I'm I can do anything that is going to, like, my brain doesn't matter. Like, you just got a, a script you have to do, you know? Interesting. But that's not true. If I need to, if I think about it deeper, like, I realize there's actually, like, Cosmic Encounter, that's... Yeah, you're on a, I think you're working on a completely different scale if you're looking at Unplayable. <laughs> All right, moving on. So Andrew has gotten the point for being the closest on that one. Let's go to the next one. So on a scale of easy to learn... To hard to learn. Where is for sale? This is the more clear spectrum. You know what I mean? Because we have a very agreed upon, I think, ideas of what is easy to learn or what it means. I need a moment. This is one of those games I've seen like the box art of a lot, but I don't think I've played it. You never played for sale? I don't think I have. Well, we're gonna get you on board game arena for this one. Okay. No, no, I haven't. I dare, I purposely chose a range of spectrums as well, from abstract to more defined. So we're looking at easy to learn to hard to learn. And, okay, and this is easy to learn or hard to learn based on David's opinion? Yes. Okay. There was the wild X factor of how well I can express this number as a clue, which also may not be correct. <laughs> Maybe after hearing your answers, I might have been like, hey, Oh, no, it wasn't 100. Sorry about that. All right, well, I, I think I do have an answer. Okay, Paul, do you have an answer? Yeah. 
All right, Andrew, what have you put for for sale on the spectrum? Uh, I'm gonna say twenty nine. All right, and why? The smallish box, the things that doesn't look like there's too much stuff going on. There might be, there's bound to be something that's like tricky-ish, probably for someone. So I didn't want to go like too low. But overall, seems simple enough that it should definitely be on the simpler side, and that seems like a good spot to be. It should be noted that Andrew hasn't played this game either and looked it up on Board Game Geek. Yep. Joss, what have you put and why? You should definitely note that. That makes sense. I put it at 15 because you don't need to know the game, all the rules to be able to start. Um, you get some money. I mean, and, it, and it's so quick. It's one of those games where you can play a game and by the end, you know the rules and then you can play it again. So, yeah, 15. All you need to know is how to start. Okay. Finally, Paul, what have you put and why? Oh, I would have said something like ten. Well, what did what did you say? Yeah. Oh, I said Ted. Yeah, this game has only like one maybe tricky concept to it, and once someone sees how the tricky thing is executed, you pretty much get it. And it, it's basically everyone bids on. It's a series of properties, and the only thing that's tricky is whoever bids the most has to pay all of their money. And then whoever everybody else gets to take half their money back and then take the uh, take the next uh, property, right? That's interesting. I was thinking about a different tricky thing. I thought that was the only thing tricky about this game. I mean, the fact that you're bidding on buildings and then using those buildings to bid on money is like tricky. It's like, oh, you're going to get these things, but you're going to use those things to buy your actual score. But I like that way of teaching the game now. I'm just going to say there's two tricky things, and once you get them, you got it. And I'll, yeah, state those. That's a good way to teach, I think. Instead of for sale, the game should have been called Two Tricky Things. <laughs> I, I mean, I've taught this game, and the only thing that beginners have trouble with is, uh, oh, you take half your money back if you're not the highest bidder. And once they see that mechanic play out, they go, oh, okay, got it. It's not necessarily good to pay all your money and then so you're trying to be the second uh second highest bidder and that's it so i thought i was like oh okay that's the only thing that i f- find people have trouble with the bidding and then bidding again is like okay now you're gonna uh turn around and flip these properties and you just uh rebid on checks and i, I i've never nobody in my experience really has problems with that concept it's more like, oh, what do you mean? I only, I, I have to pay all of it, and the other guy gets to take half back. It's like, well, if you're the highest bidder, that's what happens. So maybe you don't want to bid so much. So I thought it was like, it's, it's not a kids game, but amongst the stuff we play, it's pretty simple. So I would have just said ten. Well, I will say that this was a very hard category to think of a clue for, because the range of how hard something is to learn varies quite differently from individual to individual. Um, however, in terms of this example, the person I most agree with, or was close, or the person that was closest, was Joss, because the number I was given was 20. What number would you give it if, you, if the question was posed to you, and you didn't have to just you know, come up with a game from a number? You're saying if I took for sale and just put it into the spectrum? Yeah, and with champions, to be honest. This is where I would put it, probably around. Unless you know, thought of it more and thought of more examples of easier or harder games. This is why I included it at twenty, yeah, or or around around what you said, fifteen to twenty, because there's there's finding a clue, and then there's like something that's close to the clue is also acceptable. I feel not. I didn't have to get it spot on on twenty, you know. 
but yeah, no, about about here, I find that it's it's relatively easy to learn. The bidding is the hardest part. Teaching bidding can be difficult. My interpretive of learning is understanding the game, not just knowing how to play, but understanding why you're doing stuff. And that's where Joss's second tricky thing comes in. It's easy to understand the longer you stay in the bid, the higher the card you get. But it's harder to understand the relative value of when to drop out and um, when to play your property cards based on the checks that are out there. And for that reason, I bumped it up a little higher than 10. All right. I was more defining it by what do people need to do not to make a move that's illegal? (laughs) By that spectrum, I can see how it would be lower. Or at the very least, illogical. Yeah. As far as, like, learning how to play the game well, I mean, that's, like, secondary for teaching a game for the first time. I mean, in general, if it's the first time you're playing, I don't have any expectations that you get all of it all at once. Yeah, well, well, certainly I'm not trying to teach everything, like, all the nuances of a game when I'm teaching it. Uh, I do feel like it's important to understand what you're doing in order to have fun. If you just kind of put things out there and just because you don't know why, but you know that it's a move. That's not exactly what I would think of as fun. Yeah. I think it's more important to understand the game. That, that tends to be how all my first-time plays go, and, but just unknowingly. <laughs> I'll even let people like make illegal moves and do illegal things and then later teach them, because I feel like the, the essence of the game, what I enjoy the game, is yeah, knowing why you're doing things. Yeah. And then the people are like, oh, another rule, huh? Like I'm trying to hide something from them. Like, no. Chill out. Trust me. I'm the. Do you get that a lot? Do people like? I mean, yeah, because I mean, I don't feel like it's necessary to like inundate people with all the rules sometimes. Yeah. Um. You know, it depends on the group I'm in, but I can tell sometimes. I'm like, if I had stopped and told you all the rules in the beginning, first of all, you wouldn't remember them. So what's the point? And second of all, yeah, it's just unnecessary. Yeah, I I get that a lot too. Like. I try to do exactly the same thing, stagger the rules and introduce them at logical points so that they make more of an impact and you remember them. Because it's a little pointless to like teach you a rule that, oh, here's this obscure edge case thing that deals with this tie situation that may or may not occur. It's like, come on, dude, I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> and some people get mad at you. I'm like, what? You would have lost, they would have lost interest before even start. Yeah, you would have lost interest. We wouldn't have been able to have, yeah, get the momentum going. Yeah, I'm like, oh, now you tell me. I'm like, really, dude? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely people you can just info dump on, and they'll just figure it out, and that's fine. But most people aren't like that, in my experience, at least. And they're pretty new. They, you know, you need to stagger it a little so the information's, like, digestible. And maybe that's something I should do. I should, they think I'm, like, trying to trick them or something. Like, okay, come on. Or maybe they do jokingly. But I, sh- I should preface it with, just so you know, there are some rules that are going to come out. I'm not making them up, but I'm just not going to get them to you yet. As long as I'm with not too much of annoying people, I can get, I can say that and have them yeah, be cool. Yeah, I've seen that too. It's harder and harder the more complicated the game is. Whoa, wait a minute. The more, the more complicated the game is, the harder the rules are, are to understand? Dropping some bombs here. Hot takes, hot takes. <laughs> The guy who made Kanban, like, all those systems interact with each other. So you're just like, dude, you need to let things not make sense for a little while and then wait for it to kind of click together. What I don't appreciate is how people react to that. If you're getting into a Vital Lacerda game, you should know what you're getting into beforehand, which is part of it. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, I think it's a gamer skill. I have that gamer skill of just, like, like sitting there 
open-brained, letting things come in, even if they don't make any sense, and then and then later when I, I can have something to sift through, you know, but I, I don't expect things to make sense. A lot of people expect things to make sense immediately, which doesn't make any sense. Like, it's okay if you don't know. It's, it's just like life. What a nice uh, side topic we've uh, stumbled onto here. But anyway, for sales of 20, Joss gets a point. It is now one point to Andrew, one point to Joss. As we go on to our next spectrum. How many points does Paul have? I think he has zero. Although he's, I think he's been second. No, no, he was, he was the furthest away on this one. But whatever. Anyway, the next spectrum is awful art to beautiful art. And on a spectrum of awful art to beautiful art, where have I put Hansa Teutonica? Big box or regular? <laughs> Did I say big box? Sorry. Oh, okay. So this is the first edition. <laughs> first edition. Now, I should next next time I do this, I should just get a list of games that Andrew has played to make this more fair. Like my guesses haven't been far off. This is so tied into your, you know, artistic preferences. Correct. Um, I think I've got a number. I'm ready. I am ready. Okay. Andrew, what have you put for Hans Teutonica on the spectrum of awful art to beautiful art? On that spectrum of awful art to beautiful art, I'd say 42. And why? Because it's just, it seems pretty, like, average. Nothing really stands out. It's not terrible. Okay. It's not amazing. It seems just very standard Euro-esque game <laughs> art. <laughs> Whoa. Dis. Um, I'm a little higher. I put uh, 68. I was thinking, like, I like how the art works in the game. You have your tableau, and it looks like a desk, which is cool. And, like, you have things you take off and put on your desk. And, um, like, yeah, it's standard, but it's got this old this old style, this, like, um, medieval kind of style that, like, works with the theme. And, yeah, that's why I like it. It's definitely not Picasso, but... <laughs> what is, though? What is... Um, Picasso is. Picasso, yeah. Paul, what have you put for Hans Janica? Wow, I, I didn't expect to be on the low end of the spectrum of this. I said 30. This game, uh, it's one, it's my favorite game. Uh, I thought I would be biased towards it, but apparently my estimate is high relative to the other guys. Your estimate is low, you mean? You said 30? Yeah, 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 yeah. I thought it was 30. Like, uh, it's not known for its art. Uh, it is functional and unobjectionable, but I didn't think it was good art, so I said 30. All right, interesting. Well, no matter what I put here, it's going to be way off from somebody. And interestingly, just to even things out, it is most off of Joss and closest to Paul. The number I was given for Hans Teutonica was 23. I am interested in hearing opinions of the art being on the beautiful art side. Um, I think it's functional. I think it fits in with the theme. It is It is functional, yes. Iconography is functional, yeah. I do. I actually would raise it now because you've brought up the point that the tableau looks like a desk. I didn't even think about that. The tableau actually does look nice. But I don't really consider that art, really. It just seems like a standard kind of feel of it. I do kind of want to give it more points now, but it's too late. Yeah, this is the, this was the clue I gave at the time. On the cover of the game, it like shows the desk that you're on that you get to use, you know? And then it has like the map of it on the wall behind you, and it has like a bong. I feel like you've been preparing for too many too many mystery games to put these pieces together and just be but yeah the uh the guy, his arms are freaking weirdly placed the overall blandness of it is also kind of meh. 
I guess I think of art in like context, you know. Yeah. For cont I mean for the the theme, which is for kind of an abstract game, it's not important, but for the theme of the game, I do give you that. It does fit into that uh very well. But honestly I just don't really want to look at it for very long. Game is uh one hundred for you. What game do you want to look at all the time? Like would you hang on the wall in your bathroom? That is a great question. I don't know. I like um I'd have to think of it. There's a game called like I think it's like Ashes, uh, Rise of the Phoenix Born or something like that. Or that's a classic game of like some of the best art. I personally like stuff like Whimsical, like uh, Kodoro. I like that game where you're building a tree and it looks really nice. And there's all these spirits. Um, that is really good art. I don't know if I put it at a hundred, but that'd be up in the higher spectrum. Uh, games that have the art that's part of the game and that that's really interesting to look at, like, say, I don't know, Mysterium or Dixit. Um, those are very high as well. Moving on to the final, this one's for all the marbles, because all of you are tied at one. And so the spectrum here is underrated game to overrated game. That's right. Perfectly rated game in the middle. So where have I put Sulkin, the Mayan calendar? Hey, this is a game I played. This is one I know you played, yes. <laughs> I played it twice. <laughs> Once with you, okay. But what do I think? Or what do I think you think that I think? Well, first of all, I have to think, does David like this game? I feel like it's up his alley. I would believe that. He has a big alley. The alley is quite wide, yes. Or is it long? I don't know. There's a large variety of games in my alley. Everyone got an answer? Un uh, underrated to overrated? Close to one. It's like I know I'm pretty sure David likes it, and I think I think I know some of his comments on, but I don't know how he feels. I have a decent range. Okay, yep, yep. And Paul, do you have one? Yeah, I got one. All right, so let's uh, let's start with Andrew from underrated zero to overrated one hundred. Where do I think you think that I think Sulkin the Mayan calendar fits? Say, because again, I'm pretty confident that you like it. I'll, I'm gonna say it's just I'm gonna go back with forty two. 42. It's a good solid guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, in addition to 42 being a fun number, it just like it was in the 40 to 50 range for me, was what I was feeling. Okay. Joss, what have you put and why? I'm putting 58 because, like I said, I think you like it, but I think it all depends on like what you hear. I hear a lot of like, I listen to, yeah, gamer speak and I go through threads where people are just like fawning over it. I know they're like on Board Game Arena. They're, I think it's on Board Game Arena. Or in some online thing, they play a ton of it. So yeah, I think 58. Oh boy! <laughs> Alright, uh, I put down 40. So I'm right next to Andrew. I think, yeah, I think David like, likes this game, and it's... I think it's pretty accurately rated. I mean, it's a little polarizing. Some people like it, some people don't. And, you know, people know about it and know what they're getting into when they play it. So it's really close to being perfectly rated. But I'd lead it towards the underrated end, given that David likes the game. So, Interestingly, for me, uh, I mostly play this game online, but I don't know how that factors into it. However, what does factor in is that you all were very close, in a sense. The, obviously, different sides, but I did feel like this game was pretty accurately rated, just slightly off. And which way? Good question. One of you is within three of the correct answer. And that person is Joss. So Joss wins. And yeah, your thinking is pretty much spot on. Um, I do like this game. 
and but I also think it is slightly overrated. Yeah, you're very critical, and you play a lot of games. Oh well, thank you. And I think you you're <laughs> aware of you know other games that are just slightly better and just have slightly less things to that are annoying about it. Well, in this in this regard, I would actually feel like I'm kind of with Andrew and Paul here on their guests because this type of game I feel like would be, in my sense, considered underrated for me because it does have the very unique uh, dial mechanism and uh, play style. And while I do appreciate that very much, the reason I do think it's slightly overrated is that the game is very heavy and it's very Euro-y or... Um, but the problem I have with the game, especially the base game, which is what I've listed here without the expansion, is that it's there's it's too narrow. It's too to be effective at the game. There's very few avenues of choice that you can do and be effective. There actually is a lot you can do, but to be good, like it's pretty narrow. I, I would have to agree. You have to like have solid gameplay. Yeah, exactly. And there's not a lot of of choice there once you understand how the game works to that degree and so but that's not a big problem that happens in a lot of games where there's much more strategy than luck do you want to talk about how what kind of gameplay that is oh no i do not that would take a very long time <laughs> not even like a taste just like a taste a taste so we don't have like an abstract don't even know what, what you're talking about at all nope if you could say one thing nope. nothing you will not get you will all not right. get strategy ships out of me here <sighs> sir yeah, I think I remember David saying that there was essentially like three main strategies. But actually, well, actually, yeah, I can, I can actually go into this slightly. But this is a board game podcast. It's a little impromptu, I know. That that is true. Yeah, yeah. So in a nutshell, the only the only strategies you can really do, you need to have either a high resource production or a high corn production. If you have a high corn production, then you can use the the yellow step to or to trade corn into resources to get the buildings you you want. If you just get high resources, then you have the resources for the buildings you want, but you need to adjust those into corn to feed your workers as such. And if you don't have either of those things, if you kind of go for a weird middle ground, then you're just straight up going to be ineffective because you just don't have either resource you need or you're just barely hanging on. And that's not the way to play the game. It's it's easier to go for one than yes. one of those two things and focus on it. And essentially, you can, do you have one that to go for? Or are you just like either one? Uh, resources overall, you know, all things being equal, resources give you a higher return um, if you count the like exact corn value. Uh, on top of that, you need to just take advantage of the space. The strategy where you put two people on the the yellow track to start the game is very powerful. It's not the BL end all, but like it's so powerful. There's no reason not to do it if you're the first player, mm-hmm. and thus you get extra guys. Then you can start using cheap wood for resources or for tech, and then piling people on the resource spot to advance up. Now this all depends on what your opponents do because those spaces might not be available, et cetera, et cetera. But all right, all right, all right. In general, yeah, I got the gist. That's great. It's good to have it a little bit. And so the um, the expansion does help with that. They give you a variety of player powers to that are asymmetric, which help players that... It gives you a variety of things to do. It's still the same kind of thing, but it gives you more variety on how to get there. I thought the expansion... Well, the one I'm thinking of, it gave you a bunch of uh, variable player powers, and then whoever's good at the game will get better scores, and whoever's not good at the game will get even worse scores. Well, that's true, but... It only widens the spectrum, like, uh, the range of scores on the thing. Like, if you know what you're doing, you can really, like, score big. And if you don't know what you're doing, you're 
you're just going to screw yourself even harder because the uh, requirements become harsher as you move on. Well, the point the point isn't so much a disparity of good players to bad players, which should always exist, really, if you know one player is bad at the game. But it's more just if everyone knows what they're doing, then the expansion does help everyone get a piece of that, um, what you need to do. I, I want people who are in the middle of a road to have a better chance, because that's where I find myself in a lot of games. So one thing the expansion also does is it adds more opportunities for just kind of tactical, incidental tactics or, you know, one-time opportunity. What do you call them? Opportunity events or stuff that isn't there the whole game. Like you don't follow this general strategy the whole time. You just do it. You do it when it fits, when it's right, and you can set up for it. Like you can see it coming, so you can set up for it or other things, but it's different each game and it's it's incidental. So it's just this one-time thing to help you get ahead which I think adds to the variety, um, which is nice. But yeah, overall, though, I still love the game. The game, I think, is really great. It's got a very unique system. It's got a unique way of playing. It's very heavy. It's very good and such. But it is slightly overrated uh, for the reasons I explained earlier. Well, well, congratulations, Joss. I'm thinking on being on the same wavelength as me more so than the other players. Wavelength. Two to one to one. Yeah, you're on a real streak, man. And now I thought I'd try a new segment I made up called Future Sight, or I'm calling it that, where we look into the future and we're all going to pass judgment on a game none of us have played before. Today, the feature game is an Essen release, or I think it might have been released at Gen Con. I can't remember. So it's technically out, but I don't believe it's in retail yet as of the time of this recording. But it is a nifty little game called Turing Machine. Have any of you heard about this? No. I've heard of it. I've heard of it. <laughs> it it's gotten a lot of hype. Uh, it's pretty popular. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting game. And I'm not, I didn't look up what a Turing machine is, but I have heard of Turing testing, where you try to figure out if something's a robot or not based on a series of questions. The Turing machine was like the first computer. Okay. It was used to crack the um, Nazi code. Yeah, from the, was it the imitation game or? Yeah, uh, imitation game, yeah. The movie? Okay, makes sense. Well, it's from history. <laughs> yes, historical computer. Got it. World War II. Yeah, essentially the first computer. I see. And apparently they ran tests on it. Anyway, theme of the game is basically code breaking. So that ties into the movie, I assume. History, again. History, history. yeah. <laughs> More than just the movie. <laughs> There's no Benedict Cumberbatch uh, on this game, which I think is a real negative. But that aside, the way the game works is there are a series of codes, or I forget what they're called in the game. Let's see here. Verifiers in the game called verifiers. And what that means is there's basically four or more criterias or cards with criterias on them that you're trying to figure out. So, for example, one of the cards could say the blue triangle, which is a representative of one of the numbers. So they'll be like, you need to figure out a... Sorry, you need to figure out a three-digit code. And there's a blue triangle, a yellow square, and a purple circle, or triangle square circle, if you will. And each of them represents a number, and you need to figure out what the number is. An example of a verifier could be the blue triangle is greater than or equal to one. Basically, let's say the, the verifier is the blue triangle is greater than one. Then if you submit a number, then the verifier for this number, if the blue triangle, whatever number is in front of the blue triangle, is greater than one, it'll be positive. Like, But 
if the blue triangle number is one or less, which is impossible, then it'll come back negative. Is that clear so far? Wait, I thought the criteria was equal to one or greater. Yeah, I messed that up. So it's greater than one. Yeah, the criteria is greater than one in this example, but what you see on the card is some suggestions of what the criteria could be. So the criteria, the card will say the blue triangle is equal to one and then like a slash or a separation and it says the blue triangle is greater than one. And you don't know which criteria it is, but that's part of what testing is about. Okay. So if I submitted a number that was like with the blue triangle that is one and it came back negative, then I would know it's not that criteria where it's the blue triangle is one. And thus with deduction, I know the blue triangle is greater than one because that's the only other one there. Reverse the crypto with a dash of mastermind kind of thing? A little bit of mastermind vibes. No, I don't want to see that. I don't think so. Although I don't really understand what you just said. So... Well, it's in decrypto, you're essentially trying to figure out the number sequence. In reverse, you're figuring out the rule that produces the sequence. Yeah, okay. You're using, but you're trying to figure out the rule so you can figure out the number sequence. Oh, okay. Interesting. This isn't, yeah, this isn't a game of figuring out what the verifiers are, although you need to figure out the verifiers in order to figure out the code. There are mo there are four verifiers in each game. It's not just that. And once you know all the verifiers, then you'll have just a number. Like there's only one possible number after that. Okay, cool. Other example of verifiers is if like blue number is greater than the yellow number, if any number is even, or if a certain number is like even or odd, which is can be tricky because like let's say the verifier is the circle is odd. That doesn't mean that the other numbers can't also be odd. Checks the circle, but you don't know that. So the way the game works is everybody simultaneously will submit a code or right. write down a three-digit code. And then you will choose up to three of the four verifiers to check. To do that, you put your code in like a little thing and then put the verifiers behind it. And then it'll show pass or fail for each of the verifiers you've chosen. It's a little complicated, but it, it automatically shows you. Yes, um, it's a way. Wow. It, it's a way it does that. I don't have time to really explain how it works exactly. Just assume that it does. Wow! And it's not an app or anything. It's all like it's all like done with stack. It is competitive deduction. Yes. Well, if you're code breaking, there's nothing else it could be, right? Uh, you could have some weird Euro worker placement code breaking, like I sent Benedict Cumberbatch over here to like gain the gather resources. Anyway, definitely full deduction game. Each round you do this, you challenge up to three of the, or you enter code and choose up to three of the verifiers to test. And then you get the results back and you try to make deductions on what the final number is or and what the verifiers are. After each round, if you think you've got the code, and it doesn't have to be the code you just submitted, but if you think you got it, you give a thumbs up. If you don't think you have it, you do a thumbs down. This has all been simultaneously. If no one does a thumbs up, you just go on to the next round, which is to submit another number and do the same thing. If anyone does a thumbs up or one or more people, they all secretly write down what they think the code is. And if they are correct, they win the game or tied if multiple people get it. If they do not get it correct, they are out, eliminated, kaput. Yes, they have been discovered by the Russians and, or wait, is it Russians? The Nazis. Nazis. And then eliminated from the game. Cool. And to be clear, like, um, there isn't, like, a, a, a player who's, like, solely responsible for checking the things. That's all automatic. Everyone involved is... Work is Right. No, yeah, that's part of a 
the function of the game, how the game works. Cool. There's also an answer key. So like when you check, there's a specific place to check. These are all pre-arranged. These aren't like random verifiers that you just hope works. It's all preset. The game comes with 20 preset games and a little scan code so you can go online to find more as they as they make more. And I think maybe there might be some fan-made ones too. I'm not sure about that. That's not important. Just know that there are more on the way and there's 20 in the box that you can play of various difficulties. Some other examples for verifiers if you want them. Uh, one of them is that one of the numbers is smaller than the other two, but it doesn't tell you which spot it's supposed to be. You have to figure that out on your own. Uh, stuff like that. I like this game already. Any deduction game, like, um, what are your thoughts about how it compares to other deduction games, I wonder? Because it doesn't fit, like, the Tobago. I feel like it comes closer to Cryptid. Yeah, for sure. Because it's like a pure logic kind of thing. You're also like incentivized to figure out other people's rules to figure out the end result. This is more like abstract. That's, that's specifically cryptid, yeah. This is very similar in that you're ultimately trying to figure out the code, but you want to figure out what each rule is to figure out the code. So there's a sort of two-step process. Well, that's, that's for cryptid. It is interesting that it, it seems very, very individualistic right and that like you don't really like you don't you don't know what other people are doing as the what other codes people are submitting as they try to verify right so it's very individualized um for better or worse that is correct interestingly on that point um yeah you are trying to do it faster than everyone else so there's kind of that time pressure but the game does mention a cooperative mode it's basically you just do it as a team and discuss as a team and try to do it in as few steps as possible. So it feels like it could be played solo as well. Oh, nothing wrong with that. Cool. So we're we're rating this uh, BGG style. Or you can just you can rate it however you like. Well, I just mean it. It would not be appropriate to use like our rating system for reviews on this. Why not? An impromptu rating system sounds pretty apt. Yeah, rate it using whatever system you like. One out of two cumber batches. I don't know. Okay, you'll have to excuse the meta of it, but if the thing is about how people will rate things without actually playing it, and they go off the board game geek scale, then it would be appropriate for us to do the same. Well, we could even rate it, give like uh, multiple ratings based on different rating scales, right? We could have like a BG scale, the impromptu board game segment scale. Oh, we could put more than one rating? Okay. You think that old old machines and cracking codes is boring? Nothing could be more exciting. I know it's different when you're actually playing the game, but like walking past it, like certain games kind of draw you in and you're like, oh, I, I want to play with these little toys, but it was just very flat. And now that I know what the rules are, I understand why it's flat and that actually makes more sense and I can probably get into it more. Yeah, the table presence is not exciting. It looks like a whole bunch of punch cards on the table from what I can see from the pictures in the manual. Oh, yeah, that's that's like for real a Turing machine. <laughs> Which is probably what they did on purpose. That's thematic. Yeah, I mean, I don't, there's no there's no real way to, like, zhuzh this game up, I feel like. Super deluxe components with, like, shiny bits and everything, you know? Like, an uh, actual machine sitting there, like, <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah, table presence is definitely not the best. <laughs> okay, there's something about, like, Alan Turing being gay and, like, rolling over in his grave because of how ugly this game is. Yeah, let's go around and give final... Uh, it sounds like everyone's kind of got the general idea. Hold on real quick. Let me break down the impromptu board gaming podcast rating system. Our rating system basically answers the question, how many plays is a game really worth? It's measured in three ways. How replayable the game is, 
how many plays does it take to reach a basic mastery of the mechanics, and how fun is this game overall? A plus at the end indicates we would likely play this game as someone else suggested. So let's go around and give final ratings, uh, starting with Andrew. All right. So this is definitely a game that I hope someone else buys so I can play with them and not have to do it myself. I definitely see the appeal of this game. And like, I really enjoyed these sort of like logical deduction type games. Like I really enjoyed like Cryptid and Search for Plant X and these types of things. I could definitely see myself enjoying this. I think it'd be very cool to see the verifying automatically happen. I think that'd be a very cool experience as well. Board game game scale, I'd probably say this is like a seven-ish. But in my personal opinion, like this is definitely something I would enjoy playing, but it's not something I would want to have. Um, in terms of the impromptu board gaming segment podcast uh, scale, I give this like five, six-ish plays. Like this is another thing where I feel like I'd want to play this with the, the same group a lot if I want to like get a go for like the competitive aspect. But I think this would be fun to just show to a bunch of people. And in which case, you know, five, six times that's probably good. That's my thoughts. All right, thank you, Paul. What are your thoughts? I am not personally a fan of deduction games. I like deduction as a sort of complementary mechanic. Like you're playing a game, you have these like understandable goals and some deduction will give you an edge. But when the whole game, like the whole point of it is just deduction, I'm not a particular fan of that. For me, a board game geek rating, I'd give it a five, take it or leave it. Uh, I'll definitely try it, but I'm not super into or interested in deduction games. As far as the impromptu board gaming podcast rating i give it at least two plays i definitely you know that first play uh you know it's a first game i'll go ahead and play it feel a little lost and feel my way through it and really and then give it a second chance and really play and see where my where i'm at on it so it's definitely worth at least two plays probably three or four you don't like deduction games but probably you want to play it four times (laughs) well I want to give the game a chance. I mean, somebody worked hard on this game, I'm assuming. So that first game, a learning game is always a learning game. So you just, you know, you really learn the rules there. And then you give it a second play to see if you really want. And I'm saying I might play it again if other people really want to play it. Like, Well, you gave it a five, so it's understandable. That reminds me of like me eating these chips the other day and be like, these are kind of bad. I don't like this flavor. And it's like trying it 10 times. Just like, mm, do I still? Yeah, it's still, I still don't. Just trying to figure it out. Sometimes if it's like within arm's reach and nothing else is, you'll just eat them. <laughs> it takes, it takes him that long to realize he hates it. It tastes terrible. Hey, David, try it. It tastes terrible. Josh, what are your opinions of the game? I don't see any reason why I wouldn't like this one, especially when I get to um, compare my deduction skills against somebody else. I feel like board games in general are just like, you know, comparing some accounting, you know, number number pushing skill you have against somebody else's. And it's one I probably, even though it looks ugly, I, once I get into it, I, it'd probably be perfect and I would love it. However, it's the kind of game where I don't expect that I would like it against people who aren't equally as enamored by the idea. It seems like one of those games that is going to, I got to find the right table for it. Um, but personally, myself, I, I love it. And if I was going to rate it, I would rate it whatever the number is where like you'll probably always say yes to playing the game. Well, let's go to seven and a half because usually games are worse than you think they are. I think usually games are worse than you think they will be. Like you always start with a high like feeling about a game. And most of the time it, it does not reach that. Sometimes it does. And it 
you can even surpass it. But most of the times, do you want to give how many plays? Yeah, you think it's worth. So I'll just give it a seven. So my my overall opinion of this game is it's just solid deduction. It's very simple, but also com- you know complex enough. The concept's easy to grasp, and if you're a fan of deduction, it seems like a no brainer that you'll like this. So for me, it's a solid eight out of ten. It doesn't like go above and beyond what a deduction game is for me. It's just solid. As for how many plays I think I'll get out of this, I'm going with a rating of 10 plus. And the reason for that is there are 20 puzzles in the box. So it makes sense you'd play it 20 times. However, I'm including, you'll probably play it twice per session because this seems like the type of game where after you're done, someone else at the table will go like, no, wait, I got it now. Let's do it again. I'm going to do better. I understand what's going on now. And then they play it again and they suck anyway. And you know, then you, then you stop. Let me take a break and go back. Uh, the plus is because of the online scanning part. So there's, you know, just potential for more. So I think, you know, I, I would want to play this game with basically with all the, just do all the puzzles in the box, therefore, but two per session on average, thus 10 plus plays. That is the future. That is our future site. Seems like overall positive, except for Paul on deduction. And we'll just leave it at that. And now on, now on to the next game show. <laughs> to kind of segue into the last segment, which is online versus off- offline gaming. And the game we're going to play now is... I haven't named it. So it's something like What's the Highest or High Card. We'll think of a clever name later. But here's how it works. It's very simple. I will give you a category. And then individually, you will all think of the highest rated game on BoardGameGeek that you can think of in that category. The trick here is all four of these categories are directly related to the games mentioned earlier that we've been playing recently or that we've been talking about. Tell me, what is the highest rated Board Game Geek game in the hidden movement category? And one game you can say is Psychic Pizza Delivers Go to Ghost Town. That might be on your brain here. All right. Uh, we will start with Paul. Paul, what game have you chosen for highest-rated hidden movement game? Uh, Spectre Ops. Seems very popular. I haven't played it, but I keep hearing good things about it. I did want to try it at some point. Ah, good choice. I have play- I actually own this game, so I will try to play with you at some point. Uh, Joss, what have you chosen? Um, Mr. Jack is what I'm going to say. All right, and why? I mean, that's my favorite hidden movement game. I haven't really played too many, like, Stratego, does that count? Or that? Stratego does not count. And actually, neither does Mr. Jack, but we'll get into that. Okay, then how about Robo Rally? Does that, that doesn't count either. No, it doesn't count either. <laughs> uh, you have a, you've given an invalid answer. Uh, Andrew, what have you placed and why? I'm going to say Captain Sonar. That was my second guess. That's one of the components of that game. There's a lot going on in that game. but um, There is, yes. Yeah, it's part, I don't know too many games that fall into this category, but that one seemed pretty cool. And I guess that one might be hard to have a lot of people know about because you need a lot of people to play it. But it was a very cool game. Oh, that is fair. New answer. A new answer. That Sherlock Holmes game, the one where you wear a hat. I think there's like a hat that says X on it or something. I don't remember that thing, but we'll get into the Sherlock Holmes game because... Essentially, this category is very interesting. Scotland Yard. Scotland Yard, okay. And that is one thing I was about to mention, because this category is essentially dominated by Scotland Yard or Scotland Yard-style games, uh, including Fury of mm. Dracula and mm. Letters from Whitechapel. Those kind of games. Those are, all, those are all good answers. This, 
this category is not very well populated. It's got a few very highly rated games, and then it drops into like the two, three hundreds for most of the Fury Dracula style games, and then down to like a thousand. And so, and this is in like the top like twenty. But yeah, unfortunately, Mr. Jack is not a valid answer. There's no hidden movement in the game. It's hidden roles. Um, I guess Jack is moving around, but you don't know which one is which. But you see everyone move around. Yeah, you're right. Same with Robo Rally, I guess, in that respect. Uh, the highest game in the category is Star Wars Rebellion, which I found interesting. Yeah, it's very loosely hidden movement related. So, but it is in the category. And then War of the Ring. Really? Because I would guess that like Star Wars Rebellion is you hide your right. the rebel base and they're looking for it. You actually hide your movements. You can move it around, I believe. Oh, you can move the base around. Okay. It's a very minor, minor part of the game, and I don't really know if it should be in the category, but it is, so we include it. But of your answers, the highest is Captain Sonar, ranked 183. So very well done, Andrew. It is the third highest rated game on the list, and some may argue the number one. Uh, Spectre Ops is, looks like it's about eighth or so, ranked 638 overall on Board Game Geek. And then Scotland Yard is actually the lowest of all the other ones. Fear, <laughs> Fear of Dracula is up there, which I think you would have gotten to had you not been rushed for an answer. But uh, Scotland Yard is about 10th, but it is a classic, and I like it quite a bit. Anyway, that was the first category. Second category related to Gloomhaven, and thus Gloomhaven is not an acceptable answer, nor is the expansion Jaws the Lion, because those are both, well, A, you already know it, and B, it's the number one game, so it's pretty obvious. But the category is Adventure Games. What is the highest rated game you can think of on BoardGameGeek that has the adventure tag on it that you can think of? Let me know when you have an answer. Is Dungeon Crawl and Adventure two separate like categories in this? I mean, Gloomhaven's on the list, so and that I think is a Dungeon Crawl as well. All right, I guess I have my answer. Yeah, I never think of games in these. Like, I think more of mechanics. We are ready. Let's start with Paul. Paul, what adventure game have you put? And let's see how high rated it is. I put down Nemesis. Interesting. So that's dungeon crawly slash like sci-fi game. I think it's relatively highly rated. It's very catch the cult of the new, and I like it personally. So the sunk cost fallacy of a Kickstarter. Yes. There you go. Speaking of games, this would be probably high up on the art list too. I think it. Very thematic, like and functional, based on that. All right, good choice, Nemesis. Joss, what have you put? Um, Arkham Horror. Does that count? It does count. And just for fun, I'm going to give you the highest rated Arkham Horror game, which is Arkham Horror: The Card Game. That's also a good choice, Andrew. What have you put? I'm going to say Mage Knight. Also, yes, also a very good choice. We will. There's 100 adventure. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I actually thought it would be higher. It used to be in the top 10. It has been for a while. It's fallen all the way down to 33, which is still really high. But I had no idea it had fallen down so hard. Well, as you know, the number one game is Gloomhaven. And then the expansion for it is number five, which I don't think should be a separate game, but whatever. The highest game that you could have said, which was mentioned earlier in the Hidden Movement game, was uh, War of the Ring. War of the Ring 2nd Edition is number 10. But the game right after that owned by one of the participants here, is Nemesis. So well done, Paul. You have the highest rated game. Arkham Horror, the card game, is right behind that at 25. And Mage Knight is 33, and it's actually... It's eighth on the list at 33, if you include both Gloomhavens. A couple of surprising games on here I didn't think of. 
So like uh, Lost Rooms of Arnak is up there. Star Wars Imperial Assault. Kingdom of Death Monsters there. Seventh Continent. And of course, and earlier I mentioned, uh, Champions of Midgard. Go figure. Is Quest for Eldorado an adventure game? It is. That's so stupid. adventure themed. It's right here. That is, it's ranked 141 at the moment. Going on an adventure to the temple. I don't know. All right. Next category. Related to murder mystery parties. What theme could it possibly be? Murder? Give me your, your highest rated murder mystery game. Yeah, no. That's not it, really. Is it? No. It is. <laughs> what? It is a category. <laughs> murder mystery yeah and um i will say these games are higher rated than the hidden movement games on average tells you more of a popular category than you might think let me know when you've each got a game these are themes like themes i don't really think about uh, okay i guess i got one one in my mind i just happened to be looking at them recently so paul what have you put for murder mystery uh sherlock holmes consulting detective okay that seems pretty self-explanatory. I'm not sure how highly rated it is, but it's in there. All right. Joss, what have you put? Uh, how to host a murder mystery. What? That is a great choice. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally ready. And Andrew, what have you put? Uh, One Night Ultimate Werewolf. Oh. Is it tagged as murder mystery? I don't know. That's why I was curious. I think maybe because no one's dead at the beginning, or... But then people die. No, they don't. It's just it's just one night. Wait, they don't die? If no one dies, what the hell is the game about? Consulting Detective rated 126. That is the second highest game. You could have had one higher with Mansions of Madness, second edition. Uh, a couple other things. Chronicles of Crime, Deception, Murder at Hong Kong. Um, I do like the, the One Night Werewolf guest, but unfortunately it is not an acceptable answer in the category. The final category is... Closed drafting. Open drafting would be like a tableau of stuff like Dominion, Dominion perhaps, or Ascension, stuff where there's a card line, or Through the Ages, where you're drafting from an open thing. Closed drafting is you have a hand of cards, you take one from it, and then you pass it on, or two or three, you know. it's People can't see what you're drafting, basically, is what closed drafting is. So what is the highest rated closed drafting game? Paul, what have you put for closed drafting? Blood Rage. Blood Rage. You really think that's closed drafting, huh? You drafted the right at the beginning. That's true, yeah. It very much is. Joss, what have you chosen? I mean, Seven Wonders is pretty obvious, and also I imagine it's pretty high. Uh, you imagine correctly. But how high? As high as I can think of. In terms of closed drafting. Even my favorite closed drafting, we'd say Notre Dame. Oh, yes. I have to play that again. I played it once a long time ago, and I barely remember it. So, So do I get the highest... The highest expansion rating? Do I get that? Maybe. We'll find out. Andrew, what have you put for closed drafting? Terraforming Mars. Interesting. You put a game where the variant is the closed drafting. I feel like that's probably how most people play it. <laughs> oh, really? Well, you would be right. It is on the list. And it is number six. You can't get any higher. So, well chosen. I do find, I do find it funny that's on the list. Blood Rage, interestingly, is the second highest game on this list, with an overall rank of 40, and Seven Wonders is fifth or sixth, because Agricola is on here twice, with Agricola, yeah, Agricola 42, and then Agricola Revised Edition at 77. Seven Wonders is right below that at 80, so all three games people have chosen are in the top 100, very good guesses, but the most good was Andrew with Terraforming Mars. I don't hate it! But I think it's very overrated, which made this very easy. 
on the underrated to overrated scale, where would you put it? This is definitely a 100. 100? It's not that overrated. Hey, he said 100. Let him have his rating. <laughs> he can rank what he wants. Yeah, it was a toss-up between Terraform Mars and Blood Rage. I'm like, I think Blood Rage comes in better, but who knows? It's very consistently overrated. Okay, I think it's overrated. It's my opinion, yeah. Yeah, that's why they have all those expansions, which extend the length of the game. Oh, <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, yeah. Terraform Mars has, has a wider appeal. Uh, possibly. But the people who like Blood Rage like it a whole lot. I don't know. It's tough to say, like, because there's more people playing it, thus the average of people f- being fanatic of the game will be less, but the people that are fanatic might be more. But that's more due to its broader appeal, right? Yeah, that's a good question. Are we talking about average or are we talking about total number? Because I bet there's more fanatical Terraforming Mars people just because it has a bigger fan base, yeah, bigger audience. Whereas Blood Rage, yeah, they do get kind of in a frenzy over their game. I mean, it's called Blood Rage. <laughs> My blood is so angry. So angry. Uh, also on the list below below these, uh, on Mars is up there, which I don't remember the I don't remember the close drafting in that, but it's there. Um, then stuff like Isle of Cats, Rising Sun, Magic: The Gathering this year, as well as old classics, uh, Seasons, um, Biblios, and of course Between Two Cities, everyone's favorite. Oh, here's here's my favorite art: Ashes Reborn and Rise of the Phoenixborn, right there in 2015. And now it is time for the feature discussion of this podcast, online versus offline in gaming, the pros and cons of each, and how we feel about it. So I'm going to start with the pros for online gaming. But first, a little backstory of the history. Since board game has come out, and since the internet's been around, there has been board gaming on the internet. Uh, you can play on your computer, either against random people or against the AI, perhaps, or maybe, maybe even a friend, if you know, um, have a voice chat or just some way of communicating while you're playing. This goes all the way back to Settlers of Catan. There were a lot of unlicensed copies uh, online a long time ago, as far back as I can remember. But there are also old DOS games of Risk and Monopoly and older classics like that as well. I don't know if any of you all remember, but there used to be a program called Vassal in which a lot of old Avalon Hill games like Titan were played on there. Um, so it was a very positive feeling for that community, although there were a lot of weird connection problems and stuff when I tried to play with it. It wasn't the easiest thing to use. Um, over time, it's kind of always been there, I feel, but in general, the board gaming community has been always been more of a meetup and face-to-face kind of community. But a lot of that, I also feel, changed over the last few years due to COVID. Obviously, it was impossible to meet up during COVID, and so a lot of people, I feel, took to online to play their games. Uh, Tabletop Simulator got a huge boost. Um, That's a program on, that's a basically video game program that was used mostly originally for, to simulate a tabletop, so it was used for D&D, like you could have your little figures and move them around a simulated table, but over time, a lot of board game modifications have been added to that so you can play a quite a lot of board games online through that there's also websites like board game arena which has a lot of board games on their site and you play against people there either in real time or turn-based and there's also a few turn-based websites like yukata and boteju which you can play turn-based versus either you know, people you know or you can search for a random opponent as well so part of the um, the pros to playing online, 
is that one very easy to play pretty much any time as long as there's another person somewhere in the world on the website or the phone app or wherever that also wants to play you can play and there's essentially an unlimited player pool for the games you like to play instead of having to bring it to a session and beg people or plan ahead of time you can just straight up play anytime the second thing and this is related to covid is you know sometimes your friends aren't nearby Sometimes your friends move away to the other side of the country or across the world altogether. And this is a way to play board games with them. (laughs) Uh, Normally, it's better with a voice chat. So you still get the interaction. You still get to talk and socialize while you're playing, which is usually a big part of it for a lot of people uh, when they play with their friends. But if you don't have a choice, this is a way to play with friends who have gone far away. And even if they are nearby, um, maybe you know they're sick or some other commitment has them staying at home. You can play with them as well. Online play tends to remove the setup or the upkeep. A lot of things are scripted, especially on Board Game Arena when you're playing in real time. So you don't have to set up the pieces. You don't have to fiddle around with the resources. Uh, it's very convenient and usually easier to play stuff online or at least less annoying. Because uh, you don't have to do those extra steps and you don't have to keep up with uh, keeping track of tracks or you know other information that's just in front of you. It's just all done on the computer. Another pro to online gaming is partially because of the script to upkeep and factors like that. Games are generally faster online. It's a lot easier to take your turn. Um, things go at a quicker pace. And just in general, the game is just easier to maintain. Um, which allows for a faster gameplay. A particular instance is games where you have to shuffle your deck, especially on your turn, perhaps numerous times. This can obviously be done in less than a second on a computer, but when you're in person, it takes a bit more time. Online games are very good for grinding out a game. and By that, I mean playing several times to either figure it out or just, just play a ton to get really good at it, if that's your thing. It's a lot harder to play a game in person uh, over and over again. An easy example for this is chess. Before online chess, you would have to go to a club, play several games, theorize with other people, take hours, that kind of thing. Online, especially if you're playing five-minute time limits or faster, you can play like dozens of games every day, no problem, which face-to-face would take more than a day. And Finally, overall, it's just cheaper. You don't have to buy the games when you play them online, or if you buy the app, it's usually cheaper than the board game itself. Um, You obviously don't have a physical copy, but you also didn't spend as much. Thus, online gaming, great for being lighter on your wallet. And those are, that is my list of general pros of online board gaming. What are your all thoughts on that? Starting with perhaps Andrew, anything you want to add or comment about? I don't think I have anything to add. I would say like I that was a very thorough and comprehensive list of a lot of good good reasons to play board games online, or at least the advantages of it. Um, the the notable ones for me are connecting with staying connected with friends who I can't otherwise see face to face, and setup and cleanup, especially for bigger games, which makes it a lot. It's a lot easier for me to get um, friends to try perhaps heavier games when there's no setup and cleanup involved. And it's just a nice experience too, because I'm usually the one bringing the heavier games and having to set up and clean up. So <laughs> it's really nice for me. And it's, it makes for a lot more 
um, easier engagement. Because like if you're, if you're bringing someone into a new game and they see like all of these components and all this setup, like that can be really demotivating, or like, at least like take the suck some of the fun out of it um, before they've even started playing the game. And being able to skip all that is fantastic. Uh, Joss, do you have anything to add or comment on? Anybody who plays games in any sort of regular amount or like as like us has a probably good feel over what the pros and cons are for it times that i use it are yeah bring onboarding people who are not necessarily next to you like oh we can't play a game but we can jump into this thing that's that's light um one thing that's different is you don't really you can't really play with non-gamers as much sometimes because there's like an account there's like kind of a an extra little level to it like even though yeah setting up the board and doing all the all the work, all the fiddly stuff, getting it moving around. It's one thing that can stop people from playing. It's also something that can get people to play because they don't want to open their computer or be on their computer. The social factor isn't there <laughs> online, but it is there in person. And that's ultimately like when I got into to games and in, in, in general when I'm playing games and I don't have to be online, it's hard to get me online because it does not scratch the same itch, which I think everyone would agree with. It's definitely a specific kind of itch that it's scratching. Well, do you all agree with that? I definitely agree that it's it's a different vibe playing online versus offline. Like, I would say that playing online, it's more focused around the game, whereas playing offline, it's more focused around, like, hanging out with people. That sure makes sense. Uh, Paul, did you have anything you wanted to add or comment on? I play a bunch of stuff online. It's pretty fun. I think what it really helps me to do is learn to play the game faster. Like, one thing about playing games online is you pretty much have to assess the game from zero. And what I mean by that is you just have to look at the board state and really look at all the game situation from a sort of neutral, dispassionate place. Like, helps you learn to do it in person faster, which I think is a big advantage because, you know, it helps me with my own AP. Like, if I see the board state a lot online, I can make decisions and assessments very quickly, then I'll definitely be able to make my moves much more quickly than I would in any other circumstance. It's really, yeah, helpful in that regard. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's part of what I was going for for grinding, but perhaps I didn't specify enough. And that, yeah, it helps you just get better at the game, like play a lot or focus on things um, that you can't really do when you play so infrequently offline. Um, but yeah, so getting back to that, um, we were talking about where, like the different feel, um, that fits right into the cons list, which is surprisingly much shorter than the pros list, at least from my experience or from what I could think of. And so the cons though of playing online are one is just straight up the like, lack of face-to-face -face interaction. This goes to what Andrew was saying that it's, it's really more about in playing in person. It's more about hanging out and playing the game with people rather than just playing the game. And that also goes to my second con, which is general lack of community. There's something to like board game nights where you see people, you like, you know, say, hey, you hang out, you go meet up and you do a shared activity together. And that is often very lost on online play. It is possible to have an online group perhaps in a Discord or other meeting uh, kind of area or program. But it's still not the same as going and meeting people in person. Usually, group itself is just to get into a game or find people that want to play a game, and then you play the game. It's not like meeting, saying what's up, let's play a game together kind of thing. And then the final con I have is simply 
the lack of tactile feel. It's much different feeling moving pieces around on a board. Even with tabletop simulator, you get to move the pieces around kind of in a, in a sense, but you're still using your mouse or perhaps keyboard to do it. Or if you're very fancy, you can use the VR thing, which still isn't the same, but is kind of a cool experience on its own. But again, that's way different. Uh, you don't get to feel the pieces. You don't get to move them around. You don't get the satisfaction of constructing a thing. You are by yourself, and you can put your hands on whatever you want. Yes. So, Which is something you yeah. can't do when you're around people sometimes. That is true. So I'll put that in the... Maybe I'll put that in the neutral then instead of the con. I mean, no, no. I agree with you entirely. I was making a joke about... Um, I don't know. I understood the joke, yes. I was uh, trying to play it off professionally, but now we've de- devolved into this. So here we are. We're tearing down all barriers and of- opening up the discussion. So, so what is what's everyone's? Let's just let's just mosh pit it then. What's everyone's thoughts on uh, the cons that I mentioned, or if you want to add some of your own? Because I felt it's a it's a pretty short list, uh, which makes me feel I'm much more biased towards online gaming. One of the biggest ones I think for a lot of people is about limiting screen time overall. Yeah. Like, I just hear a lot of parents and just even regular, just uh, 20-something, 30-something people, they just go, look, I don't want to stare at a screen anymore. Online gaming's great, and it's easy and available, but I just need to get away from some kind of computer screen. When you game online, quantity is not a problem. But when you game in person, it's like it's more about quality, and like the cons are, are qualitative as opposed to the pros are quantitative, right? Like, that's the real difference for me. Yeah, it's very much like what you value, right? And that's going to skew how much time you spend online versus offline. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the things related to that also earlier was that one of the pros I mentioned was that you can play anytime with basically an unlimited player pool. But a con to that, for me at least, is that you don't know what you're getting in general when you play a random person. It could be like someone who's mega good and just straight up flattens you, which has happened to me a few times. And for me, that actually encouraged me to play the game more because that then I realize, hey, there's more to this game than I thought. I didn't realize it could get flattened. But for, I feel like on other people, that would just be a very negative experience and they wouldn't have fun just absolutely getting stomped. Conversely, you could also get someone who is just totally inept and has no idea what they're doing or is just trolling and is just doing random stuff and then the game is sort of like a waste of time depending on the game some games are okay no matter who you play with do you come across that a lot yeah on board game arena when i just put up random people now board game arena does have a kind of a ranking system that's loosely defined by there's an arena mode where it's all competitive and they try to match you up with people the same rank and obviously if you're at the lower rank uh, it could just be someone who's just starting Arena for the first time, so they just beat the crap out of you. But that doesn't happen that often, because those people will quickly advance. However, when you're playing in the general, when you win games or play well, um, you generally get higher this higher arbitrary ranking that doesn't mean anything. But it will say, like, strong player once you're at a certain level. So it helps to dissuade that a bit. But, you know, when people are just jumping on, uh, even with a strong rating or not, that isn't always a good indication of where they are uh, skill-wise. And thus, I do see a bunch of different levels when I play online. But as I was getting to, some games, it doesn't really matter how good other people are. You just do your own thing and you get your score. And you know if they play badly, it's, 
you know, that's on them. It might actually help you a little bit. But other games are a lot more interactive. If someone is playing randomly in Ticket to Ride and just takes random routes that you needed for no reason, you know, and they finish way in last, but that just hurt you in the way you were playing, um, that can be really frustrating. Likewise, as I alluded earlier, if someone just stomps you, it really depends on who you are, what you're playing for. Um, that can be a, just a wholly negative thing where you just hated every bit of it, or it can just be eye-opening. Both of these things happen in real life, too, though. Yes, but at least at least in real life, in general, it's like, unless you're at a convention or something, or you know, some weird thing, it's usually not some random coming up. Maybe you're playing with them for the first time, but after that, you'll have a general idea of, you know, what kind of player they are, and what kind of games you want to play with them. Where as opposed to online, you'll probably never see that person again. And you just have to just roll with the punches, I guess. And I feel like, I'm, I'm actually curious to hear about your experience on this, Dave. But um, my, my instinct would be that, like, in person compared to online, there's more room for discussion if there's, like, one of those, like, lopsided scores, right? And if someone's willing to learn, like, you can actually, it's much easier to have a conversation to, and you can, and you can sort of work together to try and figure out, like, what went wrong, what can I do better, et cetera. Oh, yeah, that's, that's part of the fun. And that's part of the, the community, I feel, is, you know, after the game, there's often a discussion of even if people didn't like the game, of why they didn't like it or, you know, things like that. Or you could be like, hey, what was your strategy there? Or like, how did you, you know, how did you, do you think I should have done something differently? Also in person, there's more, usually more take backs. If you do a move, yeah, if you do a move that's obviously bad or if the next person's like, hey, man, you like, I'm just about to crush your whole game. You might not want to do that. Usually a more in-person thing. On, in Board Game Arena, if you misclick, they have gotten a little better. There are some games on Board Game Arena and all the turn base, as long as you don't hit end turn, you can usually take back your turn. As long as you didn't do something that changes the state, like reveal a card, yeah, roll a die. Usually after that, you can't take it back. But any other thing, now you can take it back a little bit. But yeah, if you end your turn or you misclick and it's something that can't be taken back, you're just screwed and nothing you can do. But in person, you know, it's generally more like, hey, let's try this. Or sometimes you can even team up with someone else to do something very arbitrary, but it's fun. It's like, it feels accomplishing, you know? It's like, yeah, like you, you can't get that kind of experience online in general. All right, is there anything anyone, anyone else want to add or any thoughts or anything or questions to other people? Well, I do like that online that you can't make an illegal move for the most part, uh, uh, apart from Tabletop Simulator, I guess. The computer will correct any illegal moves, like that move is not possible because of this. So that really cuts down on like the total number of mistakes made. That's true. I have I have learned a few rules. I don't have an example off the top of my head, but I have learned some rules where I played a game that I played offline, and then I tried to do something. And they're like, "No, what, what what's wrong with you? Yeah, like who? Why did you think you could do this?" Which is also fantastic for helping new players learn the game. <laughs> or or just other ticky tech stuff where I'll be like, "Hey, I have like two more coal. Where did I get this?" And it turns out you're supposed to get some each round or something like that. You know, rules like that, yeah, it can be a, a very useful tool for learning a game. Sometimes I like to just go into an unrated game and just play it, and then I'll have a better idea when I go back and read the rules. It's kind of like, this happens offline a lot, too. We'll open a new game, we'll read the rules, we'll play the game, and then we'll read the rules again, because you know you missed something, or there's there's something, there's something different. It's like, every time I tend to find something. But that's, I feel that's also kind of part of it. It's, it's honestly a little bit of fun where you're like, hey, hey, Paul, remember how you lost um, that game? Well, it turns out we played it wrong and 
and maybe you should have won. Yeah, yeah, that 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 has definitely happened. Uh, yeah. Oh well. <laughs> we'll get it right next time. So yeah. So basically, to recap, the board game online community has kind of exploded recently due to COVID. Although it's been around for a long time in various um, capacities, Pro- online play offers a lot bigger player pool, a quicker play, and a general easier time, and perhaps um, even a learning experience. But uh, you do let, lose that community, you lose that face-to-face, you lose the tactile feel, and other things that other people tend to enjoy when playing games. And so your mileage may vary, but overall I think it is a positive thing for the community and just has to be used in an appropriate way for your board gaming needs. And that concludes the discussion on online versus offline. Let us know if you have any to add or anything we missed or if you enjoyed any part of this conversation and i don't know how to end these things how about you let me close out the show if you're listening on youtube please like comment and subscribe if you want to continue the conversation with us you can do that at our board game geek guild impromptu board gaming podcast guild number 4233 Or if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please email us at impromptuboardgamingpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, impromptuboardgamingpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you guys next time.